What's that? Frogs. The river is full of them. Ignore them. They'll just try to spoil everything. This week on Broadway for Sunday, October 29th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and the Drama Desk, and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, James. How's it going? Oh, good. Welcome back to our reigning world champion, Genesis Fox, two weeks in a row. <laughs> two weeks in a row. <laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Speaking of uh, world championship photography there, uh, you <laughs> got to f- get down to Sardi's to photograph a legend, the legend, Jonathan Tunick. Tell us about this. Jonathan Tunick, whom we are told is the first orchestrator to be honored with his portrait on the walls at Sardi's. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Those events are always fun. I uh I had been a while since I had been to one, but but this one, I was so glad to get the invite because I've always loved his work um, since. Well, gosh, <laughs> I mean, I guess I first became aware of him as a as a you know as a person <laughs> um, and as an orchestrator with company when that uh, the original cast recording company documentary was on tv back in 1970 of course even before that i had heard um recordings for which he had had done the orchestrations but that that was when uh you know he i came aware of him as an individual because he's even uh in that documentary very briefly looking very 1970 by the way <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of his his hairstyle anyway this was fantastic and and because uh, it was extra exciting because we have uh two shows uh two shows running on broadway currently that mr tunic did the orchestrations for sweeney todd and merrily we roll along both stephen sondheim and and of course one off broadway show here we are also Stephen Sondheim. Um, and then um, uh, this, I might as well mention it now. Uh, we have coming up this weekend, the Master Voices uh, group uh, chorus is doing a pre- presentation of Sondheim's The Frogs um, at the Rose Theater at Lincoln Center. Uh, this was a, a musical that he wrote back in, I believe, 1974 and was originally done in the pool at Yale. Uh, university <laughs> um, with a cast that it then included, believe it or not, Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, and Christopher Durang basically in the chorus. Um, so, incredible start for that show. And since then, it's um, it's not a complete score, but it was turned into a complete score when it was uh, uh, presented at Lincoln Center Theater um, years ago with Nathan Lane starring. Uh, so, this upcoming presentation. 
uh, which is uh, Ted Sperling directing and conducting the Master Voices and the orchestra at the Rose Theater at Jazz at Lincoln Center. The cast includes Douglas Sills, Kevin Chamberlain, Mark Kudish, Chuck Cooper, Peter Bartlett, Dylan Baker, Jordan Donica, Candace Corbin, and Nathan Lane as narrator. So um, I really think you might want to put that on your uh, radar. And by the way, they're doing three performances, which I believe is pretty unusual for this group. November 3rd at 8, November 4th at 2 and 7.30. Um, so really make a note of that. But back to the Sardis event, it was it was so much fun. And um, I got there uh, at the same time as Mr. Tunic. I was waiting for the elevator with him. And I said, you know, can I ask you something? Take this opportunity, because who knows when I'll ever get to ask you this again. And he said, sure. And I said, uh, well, you know, um, obviously, I, I know you did the orchestrations for both Promises, Promises and Company. I said, and, uh, you know, it strikes me that they both have orchestra voices um they're called orchestra voices in promises promises and in company they're called the vocal minority but they're pit singers basically um so i said uh so i know promises came first uh so can i ask was it your idea or bert Bacharach's? and he said oh that was bird he said because that was already part of his sound he had already used um those kinds of singers in previous things that he had written and i said oh okay that's great that's fair enough i said so how about when company came along and he said uh and i said whose idea was that and he said michael bennett which mm. uh, you know was immediately a light bulb in my head because of course michael bennett was also uh involved uh, in promises promises so uh i guess he liked that sound and then jonathan said something like jonathan uh he said something like um um uh, Michael wanted uh, room for dancers on stage, and so he'd rather keep the singers in the pit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just thought that was really funny. And that just um, uh, goes uh, to uh, service further evidence for the theory I've always had that although they're credited on the album of Promises, Promises, that's not actually Donna McKechnie and Byork Lee and uh, Margot Sappington singing Turkey Lurkey Time. I'm, I'm sure it's the orchestra voices. So that was a little funny little thing that happened. Um, also present at the event, because again, all these Sondheim shows are going on. Bobby Cannavale, Rachel Bay Jones, Jonathan Groff, um, Judy Kuhn, Maria Friedman, and uh, something amusing happened uh, uh, in my view. Um, I I go there's a gossip site, a theater gossip site that I go to, and someone had mentioned uh, that they had seen Jonathan Groff uh, when he was on S Stephen Colbert the other night. I think they had the um, the three of them on. I didn't see mm -hmm. it. Uh, oh. Yeah. And uh, somebody said, um, it looks like a, a wedding ring or an engagement ring on Jonathan's hand. So all these people started buzzing. Is it or isn't it? Is he engaged? Is he not? You know, so um, I, <laughs> I had to email him about something else. Um, so in the course of that, I, I asked him straight out and he wrote back, ha, no, that's just a ring I like. I'm not engaged. Um, but then when I saw him, <laughs> when I saw him at this Sardis event, uh, I mean, I really didn't get to talk with him much because it was so crowded and everyone wanted to say hi to him. But um, he actually came up to me and said, that's crazy about the ring. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, well, I said, does that weird you out that people are speculating whether you're engaged or not? And he said, are you kidding? I love it. <laughs> 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 so it was such a fun event and jonathan uh tunic well both jonathan's but jonathan tunic is such a gentleman and i always enjoy seeing him and talking to him and then may i say uh they mentioned so it's not telling tales out of school he's 85 but i swear to god he looks maybe 65 uh and you can check out my photos uh uh among you know if if you want proof of that um, so great, really great event. We have a, a link to Michael's photos in the show notes over at broadwayradio.com, but the photos were up or, over at Talking Broadway and they're yes. wonderful. And he does look amazing. He yes. really, I tell you, he's, uh, 
you know, maybe he orchestrated, he did an orchestration of a uh, musical version, of Dorian Gray, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and we'll have a link to the Master Voices, uh, the Frogs uh, uh, concerts coming up next week. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Michael, are you going to go to the Frogs? Yes. Okay. Excellent. So uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that next week. As I said, there's not that much music. Well, there, there wasn't that much music in the original version. Uh, it was quite amplified for the Lincoln Center. And I'm sure this must be that must be the version they're doing here. And there are some uh, wonderful songs in it. I remember uh, Sondheim wrote a new song for the Lincoln Center production that was called i love to travel i believe that was the title and i and i loved it so much because it was so jaunty and so much fun and it also seemed like such a a throwback to uh, like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and it was great to know that he could still write in that style if he wanted to because you know he had gotten into more a more um, modern more minimalist style if that's the right word with his more recent shows um so i i highly highly recommend the frogs especially with that cast uh will they be taking all week this week to fill up the rose theater with uh water to make it into a pool do you think (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i wonder if we'll ever see it done that way again I, i seem to recall reading of a somewhat recent production that did it in a pool uh but anyway yeah. <laughs> and uh this week coming up we have uh Halloween. Uh and anybody getting dressed up as Fosca for Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> only only Laura Benanti. <laughs> Laura Benanti. Yeah. <laughs> I think in uh they uh, the um Master Voice PR people if they can get everybody to go as a frog be a good promo for it, you know. <laughs> yeah. So all right, so this week, uh, this week that has just passed, uh, Michael, you got over, uh, as well as Jenna too, got over to see the latest, the final uh, Sondheim written musical, Here We Are, That uh, that is just opened even it's been uh playing for a bunch of weeks but it has just opened it's over at the griffin theater so michael tell us about your experience at the front at uh excuse me here we are yeah and by the way uh it didn't strike me until i got there but do we think that that griffin that the theater is named at is the same griffin uh uh who, who for whom there's a theater named at signature the alice griffin jewel box theater oh uh, really? um, so yeah this is at the shed which yes. is uh this is at, at hudson yards yes. at hudson yards so i i don't know but that's interesting we'll have to ask their uh their elusive press people yeah it's well anyway either way it's another case of um uh two theaters with the same name although yeah uh, this one doesn't have a first name attached to it mm-hmm. um it was also my first time at the shed which i i, I think the theater itself is is uh very well designed from what i could tell it's a it's like a huge um modified three-quarter thrust setup um but there are strange things about it in fact uh including the fact that there's only one fairly small door uh for the entire audience to enter and exit Mm -hmm. so how that could have happened in the modern day is really uh amazing to me i mean maybe that perhaps there are other fire exits that i i didn't see i certainly hope so um and there seemed to be a lot of wasted space in getting to the theater you go up like three sets of escalators uh and there are all these huge hallways um and then you go into the thing so i i don't i'll have to read up more on the design i didn't um i didn't really get it but anyway i realized that that's not the the big story here it's um steven sondheim's final musical which um my first reaction after seeing it was i turned to my friend and i said i don't think they should have produced it um uh one can certainly argue against that and say that it if only for historical purposes um 
it's really great to see it and hear it. But of course, they didn't have to do a full production uh, in order to get it out there for historical purposes. They could have, um, you know, they could have done a reading or they could have done a video or they could have done it at a library or something like that. Um, and there are a few really good songs in it um, that I'm certainly was glad to hear. Uh, and that brought a little bit of a tear to my eye as, uh, well, this is kind of the last we're going to we're going to get of Sondheim. Um, so, but I just think it didn't work overall uh, for me at all, almost. Um, I should say two things to start with. I paid for my ticket. Uh, I did not get a press ticket, so I don't feel compelled to give um, a, a very, very thorough and intelligent and scholarly review. And that's good because I also would say I didn't really understand it, <laughs> uh, a lot of it. It's um, based on a film, well, two films by Luis Bonuel, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Exterminating Angel. And um, I, I looked up... Uh, the first film, The Discreet Charm, which is basically the first act of this musical. Uh, and the notes um, that I read on the film say, the film's world is not logical. The bizarre events are accepted by the characters, even if they are impossible or contradictory. So um, it's uh, you, you could also say it's absurd. I guess you could say it's surreal. You could certainly say it's nonlinear. Uh, although it seems to have a more or less linear narrative, but it really doesn't. And it's about this bunch of people, uh, the, these friends who know each other to one extent or another. And and a bunch of them show up uh, at the home of one of the couples expecting um, uh, to have to, that they have been invited um, for a meal. Uh, but unfortunately, the hosts have no memory of inviting them. So that's where the absurdity and the weirdness begins. Then they all pile into a car and then they go driving from restaurant to restaurant looking for a meal. Uh, but they get turned away uh, or, or turned off uh, to each of the restaurants as they uh, keep driving. And then finally, one in their group um, uh, offers to host everyone at his home and that's where they end up at the end of the first act uh and then in the in the second act um after their meal uh it turns out that for whatever reason they cannot leave they are unable to leave this place and it's kind of it's kind of starts to seem like no exit at that point mm. sartre's no exit i mean that's the thing that immediately leaps to mind um and the other thing uh, about this show, as I'm sure you may have read, is that there is very little music, very little singing in Act Two. Um, there's, uh, you know, a, pretty much a full score in Act One, uh, and then uh, a song at the beginning of Act Two, and then two very brief songs after that, and then for the next 45 or 50 minutes, no singing at all, and only a little underscoring. Um, now, here's an interesting thing. At one point, David Hyde Pierce is one of the group, and he plays a bishop. And at one point, early in Act Two, he sits down at a piano and tries to play. But when his hands hit the keys, no sound comes out. And I thought, oh, well, uh, I hadn't heard anyone else remark on this, but um, this is, I guess, a justification for the fact that there's no singing and very little music in act two uh because something weird has happened to these people and it's like now they can't uh there's no music in their lives they can't even express themselves in music so i thought that maybe they could have made a little bit more of um that thing with the piano and maybe that should have been at the very beginning of the second act and uh there should have been absolutely no music in the second act including underscoring until finally at the very end um all of the people they do manage to escape from the from the room uh by performing a sort of Tra retracing their steps and performing a a ritual to like sort of undo a curse that apparently has fallen on them um so uh that's that's the basic thing but it's so 
so surreal and so bizarre the way the characters relate to each other and uh um just the things that they that they discuss uh there's so many different types of characters and another thing is that um i didn't feel like there was any attempt to specify the locale uh uh, uh Bobby Cannavale, for example, is one of the um, uh, one of the members of the of the group, and he has a a thick New York accent. But Stephen Pasquale is another one, and he has a very thick Italian accent. Um, and the other people all have various accents. Uh, so I, I guess it's not important where it is. If you look in the program, it just says that Act One is the road, and then Act Two is the room. Um, so I'm not sure if if my attempts to describe this are are making any sense whatsoever, and but that might be partly just because I'm not doing a good job of it, but also because the story is so very very strange, and um, I'm not sure what the ultimate point of it is, except uh, I guess the the film was supposed to be a a, a satire of the bourgeoisie, uh, you know, these entitled people just um, going around and trying to get a really good meal somewhere and being all, all nouveau riche and stuff like that. Um, and I think it does have something to do with existentialism and no exit and, and that, that kind of stuff. But um, I'm afraid for me that, the score for the most part seemed extremely uninspired um with two exceptions uh um david hyde pierce does have a, a very very funny entertaining song as the bishop and then jin ha who plays a soldier uh has a lovely uh, love song that he sings to um, someone he falls in love with. And the person he falls in love with is a person named Fritz played by Mich Michaela Diamond, who first we, uh, we are sort of told that she's gay. I believe she uses that word, but then it seems like she might be non-binary or trans. Uh, but then after all that, she winds up in an intense sexual relationship with this soldier um so i'm not sure what we're supposed to take from all that from that character um what else uh the um there's a character named claudia uh and it's pronounced that way uh by several people including stephen pasquale and for a while i thought it was in Amori Yestin's Nine, because <laughs> that's a character in that show and it's pronounced the same way uh there's another character named marianne uh, and they're uh, played by Rachel Bay Jones. And there's a song called Marianne. Uh, and I have to say that in this case, the Jerry Herman song, Marianne from the Grand Tour, um, wins uh, over this one, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so, uh, you know, I know some people uh, are fond of comparing Sondheim to Herman and saying how vastly superior Sondheim is. And certainly it's a very, very different kind of writing. But um, in this case, I like the Herman Marianne better. Um, directed by Joe Mantello, book by David Ives, who, uh, you know, again, I, I've not seen the films and absurdism, surrealism is not my bag. So I, I have to keep all that in mind when I say that I thought he did an awful job with writing the book for this show and um those are my thoughts in a nutshell i'd love to hear what jenna thought so jenna uh, what did you think uh i i felt much the same uh like you i uh got my well i didn't pay for my own ticket a very dear friend uh bought uh. my <laughs> ticket for me because she's wonderful um but yeah, I saw a much earlier preview a little while ago, so I hope the show has improved since I got to see it. Uh, Michael, I really agree with you on a, in a lot of ways, especially that uh, the show probably should not have been produced uh, mm. as a full musical. Mm. Mm. Um, it's presented as complete, and it isn't. Uh, like you mentioned, there are very few songs in the second act, uh, you know, and that's nobody's fault, but what bothers me again is presenting it as a complete full musical 
when right. half of the creative, uh, half of the writing team uh, died t- uh, two years ago. Uh, that's kind of a problem. Uh, you know, Chekhov's guns are set up all over the place, and sometimes <laughs> they don't go off at all, or they go off with you know, a misfire. And you know, I really wonder would that have happened had the full creative team been involved all the way through opening night? Uh, yeah. Like you, I'm not a huge fan of surrealism. Some exceptions, I do love No Exit, but uh, not being familiar with the original films, there was a lot that I just didn't get as a whole. Uh, Perpetually, (laughs) there are, in the first acts, when they're on the road, uh, there are projections of fields of wheat on either side of the stage. And uh, David Zinn did the sets, Natasha Katz did the lighting, great work from both of them. But I was constantly distracted by these projections because I thought they were in an urban environment. Hmm. And I couldn't understand why are there fields of wheat in, you know, are they walking across Central Park? Is Central Park now a farm? I have no idea. Very confusing until I began watching some clips from the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and the characters in the movie are perpetually walking down this rural country road to go from restaurant to restaurant. I didn't know that. And it made no sense to me. It was downright distracting to mm. to have those projections. And you know, I completely understand it's good for an audience to do its homework and to know the source material before going in. But a show should be able to stand on its own, even if the audience doesn't know what the source material is originally. And that, to me, was you know, a sign of uh, a sign of the piece not connecting. Um, I absolutely agree. Although, again, not having seen the films in this case, it might not have helped because apparently the films themselves are so. Exactly. Strange and bizarre and, and surreal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the nature of surrealism. I, yeah. I totally get that. It just, again, it kept taking me out of the moment as I tried to figure out where are they. And sure. that could be what I'm thinking about when you know, there's David Ives's book and Stephen Sondheim's score and Joe Mantello's direction. That's what I should be focusing on. Um, and because the you know each act of the show is based on a different Buñuel film, mm. different characters, what the characters do in Act One does not connect with what they do in Act Two, and it, it they felt like completely different characters uh, from one act to the next. I again, this is something that I wonder: would this have happened if the full creative team was there all the way through? I also wondered, would this have been stronger if it was presented as two you know, one-act musicals or even a one-act musical based on Discrete Charm of the Bourgeoisie and then a one-act play with some mm. underscoring mm. based on the Exterminating Angel? It might have been a bit more effective for me that way because I was trying to figure out why is this character behaving in this way now when they were behaving so differently earlier in the day. Right. It it just didn't gel for me. Um, the cast I thought did some great work. I thought they were you know, they hyped up the surrealism and the ridiculousness. They were funny. I can credit a lot of that to Joe Mantello's direction. Um, but again, they can only be as good as the material they're given, and they were given incomplete material. Uh, again, I really liked Zinn's sets. The you know, sterile. Uh, whiteness in the very beginning uh, and at the end of at the end of act one the curtain goes up in the back to reveal a very different set and just mm. hearing the audience cheer to mm. see this gorgeous set suddenly appear on what has been this you know white blank page or canvas <laughs> that uh, we've been looking at for uh, much of the first act that's a beautiful moment that's a great moment of pure theatricality and I missed those moments throughout the rest of the show. Uh, you know, there's a lot to admire in the show. I'm glad the critics have uh, enjoyed it so much, but it feels it feels incomplete. It feels like it needs it should be have been presented as a concert or in a different format. 
I might have enjoyed the show more if I was more familiar with Buñuel's work, if I was a bigger fan of surrealism. And for fans of Buñuel, for fans of surrealism, please go enjoy. Uh, I, I truly hope they do. But going in cold, it didn't grab me. I would like to see it again. Once the cast recording is released, once I see Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Exterminating Angel all the way through, I will fully own up. I may be missing things that I can appreciate on a second viewing. And even still, I'll listen to Sondheim scores from the 70s, 80s, and pick up on things that I've missed on the previous hundred times I've listened to them. There's always something new to catch. And David Ives' uh, plays frequently bear a second viewing, and you can find more fun details that you didn't pick up the first time. So I really hope I'll come to appreciate the show more with repeated listening to the score, with repeated listening to Ives' dialogue, but going in cold, it just didn't work for me. Yeah, that last so, point is really good. Uh, I mean, it's always been said that that Sondheim's shows are so rich and so complex that you really can't get everything on the first viewing. Uh, and I think that's especially true of this one. And so um, if nothing else, uh, I'm sure we'll get a cast album and then we can sit down and, and at our leisure and, and kind of dive in and see if we can... Uh, understand more what what's going on here um and by the way i i only mentioned a few cast members i really should we should mention them all because oh, it's yeah. yeah uh francois batiste tracy bennett uh bobby cannavale michaela diamond amber gray jin ha rachel bay jones dennis o'hare stephen pasquale um david hyde pierce jeremy shamos and adante carter so uh, that list of people, uh, you know, uh, in a Venn diagram of nominees under any theater category <laughs> is probably complete. You know, it's an amazing, an amazing cast. Uh, and the, the funny thing about this is, and, and both of you touched upon this, is that uh, the reviewers, the, the the New York Times and Variety and and the major papers and the major outlets gave it great reviews. Yeah. Uh, and all of my friends who are, you know, uh, theater people who uh, whose opinions I really treasure have been like, I didn't quite get it. So I, it's so interesting to see. I'm interested maybe when Peter gets back next week to see what he says about this. Um, but it, uh, I, I feel like there's something missing in there. And even with all the great reviews and everything like this, nobody has mentioned the word transfer. Mm. You know, that this would transfer to Broadway or be yeah. a good show for Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's telling. Uh I, I think that that's that's important uh, about it. Uh, Steve Bell in our chat room mentions that Act One was all white and Act Two was all black, uh, and so that might. Uh, well, I'm not sure what all black means. I mean, it, it it's it's in a room that looks. First of all, as I mentioned before, it, it looks the very set, European. He said, he's saying the set was all black. It was set? dark. I didn't think it was black. It was I'm like not sure dark, what. Uh, no, I'm not sure what he means. Mahogany wood. Yeah, maybe he means the surrounding. Uh, oh, maybe he the means psych? the surround. Yeah, because uh, Act One is just like white, bright white squares, sort of in this netherworld thing. Uh, but and then maybe he means the background of Act Two, because there mm. is a it, it is a full set. This Jenna mentioned of yeah looks like a european mansion or something yeah yeah it's gorgeous yeah and uh i did a little bit of sleuthing while you guys were uh giving your reviews um the shed kenneth c griffin theater on hmm. level six can seat 500 people and kenneth c griffin could not be further from the from Alice Griffin. Oh, okay. <laughs> Kenneth Cordell Griffin is a hedge fund manager who donated a lot of money to the okay. shed. <laughs> and and Alice Griffin uh, is a prolific playwright best known for the author of Shakespeare's Women in Love. 
Ah, thank uh, you for doing that. <laughs> so yeah, they probably uh, they don't seem to be related. They don't seem to be peas in a pod. They seem to be very, very different. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, but folks, if if you hear that your show is at the Griffin Theater, just make sure you know <laughs> yeah, which one it exactly. is. They're actually not that far apart. Uh, so if you go to the wrong one and you sprint, yeah. you could probably make it to the other one. <laughs> but if you uh, hear that your show is at, at the show that you're going to see is at the Hayes, you're you're in good luck because. It's all the Hayes, Helen Hayes, the Hayes Theater. It's, it's all the same place. So. Oh, man. Oh, to your point, boy. James, about nobody yeah. mentioning a transfer, I think it's worth mentioning you know, none of Sondheim's musicals ran for more than a thousand performances in their initial Broadway runs. Mm. Right. And I would love to know how many turned a profit, especially after, you know, after the 1970s, uh, I'd be very interested to know the financial logistics of transferring a musical when there is you know, a devoted, uh, impassioned audience. But is that impassioned audience enough to keep a run going at a Broadway level long enough to turn a profit and keep everyone employed for a long time? Hmm. Uh let me see here if there's a quick answer for that. So, well, you know, there are always going to be plays and musicals and movies and TV shows that a lot of people really, really love, but they're just not uh, mass market kind of things. And uh, and I I don't suppose that'll ever change for Sondheim. You know, even the mm -hmm. past shows. Um, even though, uh, he's so much more part of the mainstream now, I think, than he was when, well, you know, in 1970, uh, it's, uh, but that's fine. I, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, no, not at all. But in, in my opinion, <laughs> I mean, I'd be very happy if the show transferred to an off-Broadway house and ran for years. <laughs> I, that would be phenomenal. Uh, but again, transferring, assuming you meant uh, James Broadway, transferring yeah. to a Broadway house. Yeah. I, I just wonder about the financial risk for that. And no, and uh, that's what I was saying is that in in all the people that said wonderful things about the show, nobody mentioned that it would be a good candidate to transfer. Mm -hmm. I think everybody understands that this is a niche market and that we don't have Stephen Sondheim pop-up stores that come around Halloween selling foster <laughs> costumes. Good. Wouldn't that well, be awesome? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, aside from everything, the, uh, when we look at all of Sondheim's past shows, and, and they're really so different from each other, that was one of his, uh, the, the greatest marks of his genius. Um, but not one of them uh, could be classified as surreal or absurdist. Um, so I think that that's, you know, maybe a bridge too far for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, uh, not and one. and uh, I can't think offhand of an absurdist uh, play or movie that has become a, you know, a tremendous hit at the box office <laughs> um, and not intended to again. So, uh, so just bearing all that in mind, mm. not one, no, no, not one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next up, uh, Jenna yes. went to the Ensemble Studio Theater to see a production of Redwood. So tell us about yes. this. Yes. Uh, Redwood is a new play written by and starring Brittany K. Allen. Uh, it follows a young couple, a black woman and a white man, who have just moved in together and are not certain about the next step in their relationship, especially given their own relationships with their parents and their extended families. Uh, things get a lot more stressful when the woman's uncle begins researching the family tree and begins discovering some very uncomfortable history that I won't spoil here. Uh, the play reminded me of Leopoldstadt from last season in a couple of ways, especially in how it examines family dynamics and generational trauma 
and the legacies that parents and grandparents leave for their descendants. Uh, Alan's script uh, nicely balances some very powerful, serious moments with lighter comedy. So the piece never feels too ponderous, even when we're listening to some truly horrifying stories from both past and present. Um, while the play is very moving and often very funny, the script really has some rough spots that I think Alan could smooth over fairly easily. Uh, uh, there are going to be a couple of spoilers here, mild spoilers. If you're planning to see the show and you probably should, uh, maybe jump ahead a few minutes. Uh, we get some hints of the young woman, Meg is her name, Meg's efforts to increase funding for public education. And in several scenes, she is preparing a presentation that she's going to deliver for the state Senate. We never see the final speech. We never really learn what that meant for her to give this presentation. Uh, it's a lot of buildup with no payoff, talking about Chekhov's guns being set up. Uh, considering what we learn about her family and all of their struggles, it would be great to see this moment for her and see how it affects her decisions about her personal life. Uh, we also learn over the course of the play that not only are the central couple facing some challenges in their relationship, but Meg's uncle, who's been doing this genealogy project, he recently ended a relationship and Meg's parents may be separating. And again, this is built up across multiple scenes and there's no real payoff for two out of those three storylines. Uh, Alan has created some really compelling, complex characters. I really hope she fleshes them out and fleshes their challenges out some more in the next rewrite. I think the play would be much stronger for it. Uh, the cast works very well together. The scenes with the main family really feel like the actors have known each other for a long time and are very comfortable talking with each other. Uh, Tyrone Mitchell Henderson plays Meg's uncle Steve with a wonderfully sharp wit. He gets many of the play's biggest laughs. Portia plays her mother with a good sense of humor and the sense of serenity that covers up, mostly covers up, the anger and frustration that she's currently battling. Uh, Bryn Carter is heartbreaking as one of Meg's ancestors. She does a lot of her best work with just the expressions on her face. She conveys so much emotions with a glance, and the character has surprisingly few lines for being such a dynamic presence throughout the play. So Carter's work is just a wonderful study of silent, uh, silent power, silent, uh, silent acting. Excellent work. Um, I mentioned that uh, Alan both wrote the play and plays Meg. Uh, she gets some strong moments, but she doesn't seem to convey the depths of the conflicting emotions that Meg seems to be feeling as the play goes on. Uh, Michaela Mahoney directed the play. Very sharp, very energetic direction. She does a great job of building tension from scene to scene. Ao Lee's set uh, looks for the most part like a middle-class kitchen, but then the pieces of that kitchen move around to become different spaces from scene to scene. That's very effective uh, use of the space. Uh, Mika Ubank's costumes do a nice job of establishing the character's current situations and their backgrounds and their tastes. Uh, there is a very powerful on-stage costume change towards the end of the show that really emphasizes how valuable a good costume design can be for changing the, the dynamic of a scene. Uh, and it's always nice when plays have choreography too. Sasha, Sasha Hutchings dances and uh, athletic choreography do a nice job of establishing scenes and characters and also getting some good laughs as uh, the uncle participates in different kinds of uh, aerobic and athletic uh, classrooms. Uh, Redwood is really thought-provoking. The play deserves to be seen. It deserves to be discussed. I think it needs some tightening and some refining, but I really think it could become a staple of regional theaters for a good long while.
All right. So that's uh, Redwood at the Ensemble Studio Theater. It's playing through November 12th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, uh, you saw Emergence. Things are not as they seem. So tell (laughs) us more about this. This is a really good show at the, uh, I guess, aforementioned Pershing Square Signature Center. And it's put together by a fellow named Patrick Olson, whom I had not heard of. Uh, That's O-L-S-O-N, by the way. Uh, His bio says uh, that uh, he has a diverse background as a lifelong composer, musician, educational science publisher, producer, and entrepreneur. Patrick Rode recorded and released the album Music for Scientists in 2021 as an artistic and emotional expression of the power surrounding profound scientific insights. So that's Patrick Olson. Uh, and this, uh, somebody else described the show as uh, a TED Talk, uh, but with a, a lot of um, really good production values. Uh, it's uh, Patrick himself is very much the focus of the show as the central performer and singer and uh, star and, and t- uh, telling these stories that he tells, but um, believe it or not, he's got four singers and four dancers um, backing him up. Uh, so quite um, unexpected for a, a little off Broadway show in a little theater at the Pershing square signature center. And it's a, uh, fascinating evening of uh insights and little mind-bending observations uh of various types that have to do with um science in in i guess in one way or another for example early on he tells uh he says well imagine yourself driving from new york to new haven uh you know it's not a terribly long trip uh probably would take about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes at most. And if you were to make that trip in your car, you would think nothing of it. He said, but if you were to travel the same distance directly up, (laughs) um, you would be in a place with no air and no gravity and no sound and a place where, uh, you know, life is not sustainable and you would see the earth from a, vantage point that you have never seen it before uh and so he told that just as a example of a i guess a perspective kind of story then he uh mentioned that as i think many of us know um the sun is 93 million miles from the earth and for that reason it takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to reach us he said so theoretically if the sun suddenly disappeared we wouldn't know about it for eight minutes. <laughs> um, although uh, I'm not sure what would happen gravity-wise. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that would, would it be an immediate effect on uh, all of the planets you know, being destroyed. But uh, anyway, whatever. And then he also said on a related note, um, and I, again, I think, I think a lot of us know these things, but you, don't, you just don't focus on them. You don't think about them. He held up a yellow tulip and he said, this tulip looks yellow to us because nothing in it has the quality of yellow we're we're only seeing what's reflected back at us so the materials of the tulip absorb all of the other colors except yellow and then that that shows it back to us so that's what it was an evening of and um but he is, as as his bio indicates, he's also uh, largely a music guy. And uh, the songs were really very, very um, compelling, uh, very haunting and uh, very enjoyable. Um, I would say I enjoyed more than some of them, more than what I heard. And here we are. Um, so it's an unusual show to say the least uh, uh uh but if that description sounds like something that interests you i think you'll find the execution of it really very good and uh it's worth a trip uh, i i i think i i certainly enjoyed it 
they uh it, it sounds like um they they should try to have this show sponsored by some sort of edible company it's it's uh it's, oh, it's really <laughs> i hadn't thought of that <laughs> yes it's i hadn't thought of, of that very 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 deep <laughs> now what is the color blue to you is the color blue to me <laughs> Right. So, <laughs> 93 million I, miles to the sun. It's almost as far as New Haven. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on a Sunday evening, <laughs> coming back in the summer, you know. <laughs> almost as far as getting to the shed, come to think of it. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Or parking near the shed. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we they, they have a video on the on their website uh, that uh, delves into this and shows this little snippet of the show. Uh, really, it's very, very interesting. I have to uh, check it out. Check it out a little bit deeper. Really wonderful. I, I love very different things, and also the fact that they're you know they took what could be a one person show and brought nine people into it. You know? That was really impressive. I, I couldn't believe it. And I, you know, I mean, I have no idea about the financing of it, but I don't know if, if he or he's got a producer who's independently wealthy, but it was really nice to have those four singers and those four dancers. Yeah. So uh, next up in our list, uh, Michael and Jenna were at 54 below to see Marilyn May. We teased it a little bit last week, but uh, so Michael, you are our resident scholar on Marilyn May. Uh, tell us what you thought about this uh, performance. Well, I can't give an objective review because she started out by kissing my head. <laughs> <laughs> As most performances do start in, in every Or theater. should anyway. If only. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, she... Um, Marilyn, I guess, always starts uh, her sets at 54 Below in the audience. But this time, she spent an extra amount of time uh, uh, among the audience, going from table to table as she sang um, a, 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 a medley of songs about um, that have the word face in them, whenever I see your smiling face, and uh, also the word smile in them. Uh, of which she has a lot in her repertoire. So she went from table to table greeting people and holding their hands. And then when she got to me, she decided she wanted to kiss me on the head. And of course, the audience thought that was hilarious. Um, so <laughs> it started out really well for me. <laughs> the show. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, as I said to Jenna, and several other people I, I've seen her so often lately, but I truly think this was one of the best shows ever. It just, that just happens on a certain night that there's an extra spark or an extra bit of energy and the audience is uh, maybe uh, extra appreciative. Um, also Marilyn um, for this engagement, she usually does runs of, uh, you know, like seven performances in a row or whatever but this time it was broken up there were i think two the first week and then three the second week and then you know the two or three the third week um and uh because of that that the night before jenna and i saw the show uh uh marilyn had come back after a break of two or three days and apparently she had um screwed up some of the lyrics the night before we went and she was upset about that. So she made sure that she, uh, <laughs> you know, that she went over uh, them all again. And she was pretty much perfect on the night we went. Um, so I think that that also was something that she was very conscious of. Um, really great program. Uh, gosh, quickly. Um, I've grown accustomed to her face. I could have danced all night, both from my fair lady. Oh, on the street where you live also from my fair lady. Uh, I've got the world on a string, what the world needs now, let there be love. Um, she, Marilyn recorded, first recorded what the world needs now years ago. And she said that it seems more pertinent now than ever. Uh, and of course, everyone knew what she meant. Um, this could be the start of something big. This, the Steve Allen song, 
I love you today. Also, Steve Allen, Joey, 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 and Luck Be a Lady, Frank Lesser uh, from Most Happy Fella and Guys and Dolls, Lady, Lazy Afternoon, Every Time, e- this beautiful song called Every Time, uh, music and lyrics by you, Martin, and Ralph Blaine, apparently from Best Foot Forward, a show I do not know, um, but I'm going to have to listen. A beautiful ballad. Um, and then, uh, oh, uh, Marilyn did an autumn medley that I told her later made me cry. Autumn in New York, autumn leaves, and when October goes. And then the um, end of the program was Here's That Rainy Day, Stormy Weather, Secret of Life, and Here's to Life. So it was a great evening. All right. Jenna, what'd you think? Uh, I completely agree. Uh, what he said. That's pretty much my review. <laughs> What he said, uh, I agree. I especially loved her renditions of Joey, Joey, Joey and Lazy Afternoon. Uh, her her rapport with the audience is so is so strong, so comfortable and casual. You know, she really just makes the crowd, well, at least me, she made me feel like we're hanging out in her living room and she's just casually chatting with us. Yeah. And... She just knows how to build that relationship so that everything feels just comfortable and inviting and warm. Everyone's in a good mood. I mean, it's hard not to be in a good mood with wonderful songs uh, and 95 years old and still belting them out like nobody's business. I mean, God bless her. She, uh, I was chatting with uh, Len Rodino and Robbie Roselle after the show, and we all agreed that instead of wishing people health and long life and success, we should just make it a quick shorthand to say, may you be like Marilyn May. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Michael, do you have the program right there? It occurred to me that Ted Firth was at the piano. Uh, the the oh yes yeah so I'm good. so sorry not to mention yeah Ted Firth at the piano and Tom Hubbard on bass and Mark McLean on thank drums you. thank yeah. you I was trying to find their names and yes they did beautiful work as well especially as she's chatting with the audience and making us all feel like we're hanging out in her living room they would be providing underscoring and I noticed the uh, the music that they used for the underscoring would sometimes shift and change hmm. while she talked. And now, of course, I couldn't tell you what songs they were playing to underscore her conversation, but what it it just fits so perfectly to just hear them working with her. Like they know her so well. She was talking about how she knows each of these musicians personally and how they've worked together for so long so that they know how to back her up literally and metaphorically. And yes. While she's chatting with the audience and making us feel so warm and comfortable, they're providing the underscoring for that. And when she's ready to start the song, it's just an effortless next step in to the next number. And the way they work together is a masterclass in the art of cabaret and seeing how the singer and the musicians can come together to create that vibe and energy. It was just beautiful to see the whole evening. Everything about it was great. Uh, I I know she's performing again on Halloween. She mentioned that several times. Uh, she said you can, people can come in their costume or in nothing at all. So <laughs> I, I, I'll be interested to see if people uh, do that. But definitely anyone who likes cabaret should absolutely uh, catch the show. It's just, it's wonderful. And it's a great way to see what a masterclass in cabaret can be. Okay. So I'll have a link to uh, 54 Below's page for Marilyn May with all the dates there. We have, uh, let's see, we have Tuesday the 31st coming up. We have Monday, November 6th, Monday, November 13th, and Tuesday, November 14th, all at uh, 7 p.m. And so you can check it out there. So uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to 
Peter's brain teaser. He did record it for us this week. And the musical moments. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com, this subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio is the way in which you can get our shows earlier than anybody else and support uh, Broadway Radio's shows. Uh, you can listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Pandora, Google Play, uh, YouTube Music, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, we missed you last week. How's Virginia? <laughs> oh, terrific. They're doing a wonderful job with the play. I'm really very impressed with all they've achieved. And uh, the audiences uh, really had a good time, too, I think. I, maybe I'm just hoping that they did, but it seemed to mm-hmm. me that they did. So, who knows? Who knows? But anyway, um, I'm looking forward to going down and seeing it uh, two more times. And um, we'll see what happens if anything happens after that. Okay, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, What do these musicals have in common? Dracula, The Boyfriend, Sister Act, The Drowsy Chaperone, Thoroughly Modern Millie, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and Draft the Cat. Well, they all had characters who had Van in their names. Dracula, Abraham Van Helsing, Draft the Cat, Matilda Van Gilder, The Boyfriend, Bobby Van Usen, Sister Act, Dolores Van Cartier, The Drowsy Chaperone, Janet Van de Graaff, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Muzzy Van Hosmere. And here was the tricky one. Uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, because she's only known as Lucy in the show. But if you follow Peanuts at all, you know that she's Lucy Van Pelt. Oh. So uh, that was the tricky part of the question. Nevertheless, Paul Whitty got it. He was the first, followed by Tony Janicki, Michael Wannis, Brigadude. Fred Abranowitz, Ingrid Gaberman. This week's question. What do these Tony-winning performers have in common? Maria Carnilova, John Cullum, Richard Kiley, and Rex Harrison. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Peter, we will speak to you next week, won't we? Yes, indeed. I promise. (laughs) All right. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our opening and closing songs uh, this week are from The Frogs. This is from the first recording of that brief score, uh, which was released in 2001 on the Nonsuch label. And uh, the first song is the title song also uh labeled the parados p-a-r-a-d-o-s uh and it's very delightful uh for the the froggy noises you're going to hear in the frogs um the the chorus is the frogs they basically function as a well a greek chorus (laughs) um and they sing things like and coax, coax, uh, and they're just commenting on things that happen during the show, uh, and that has always been a really great opening number. I I thought it gets the show off to a really fun start. Um, but then uh, the closer is this beautiful song called "Fear No More." Uh, Shakespeare is, believe it or not, a character in the Frogs. Um, and he, uh, on this recording, the, the role or the song that he sings was sung by Davis Gaines. And it's called Fear No More, and it's really very beautiful. Um, so two very contrasting songs from the Frogs, from the original version of the Frogs. Uh, but both of these songs were retained uh, for the expanded version of the show that was done years later at Lincoln Center. And as I, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty positive that that's what's going to be done at uh, the Rose Theater by the Master Voices this weekend. All right. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. 
拜拜，拜。And girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash. Nor the all-dreaded thunderstorm. Fear not slander, censure rash. Thou hast finished joy and mourn. All lovers young. Lovers must consign to this and come to dust.